Well, good morning. I want to invite you to stand as we begin. So great to see you guys here. We have a God who cannot be stopped. Amen. And he makes things that are impossible, possible. And that's what we're going to sing about today. Let's worship him. because of Jesus this morning. Let's sing it together. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your praise forevermore. Jesus, our God, unstoppable. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your praise forevermore. Jesus, our God, unstoppable. Come on. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable. We'll shout your praise forevermore. Jesus, our God, unstoppable. Nothing shall be impossible. Your kingdom reigns unstoppable.
doing impossible things and making them, or taking them and making them possible. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat uh, as we continue our worship this morning. So great to see you all here. It's always uh, an honor to be with you and to worship with you each and every week. If you are our guest, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, it is our pleasure to be here and to worship together with you and that you chose to be here with us at Peckway Church. We love connecting people to God and one another. And so it's my hope today that in this service that you will have that connection. Um, and one way that we can connect together is by that green connection card that is inside of your bulletin this morning. We ask everyone to fill out this card. Um, and so on the back there is a place that we have some things that are available for you, resources, but uh, also prayer. We love to be able to pray with you guys. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Maybe you were thinking about something in your life uh, that's impossible, that you feel like is impossible, that's a mountain that needs to be moved. Uh, if you would, trust us this morning, place that impossible thing on your card, and it is our privilege as a staff to be able to come together each week and pray with you guys about those things. You can share that confidentially, you can check a box there, or we have a, a trusted group of people who also pray with you guys on that too, So, but it would be our honor to do that with you. But also, um, if you're a first-time guest, you can also text the word hello. Just simply take out your phone, text hello to 717-872-5679. And again, just a digital way of making that connection with us here at Peckway Church this morning. I'm also excited about Easter coming up. Inside of your bulletin are a couple of cards there um, that you can share about our Easter service and the egg hunt for the kids that's coming up. And uh, so in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song that we've sang before, um, but it's going to be a song we'll sing on Easter that celebrates Jesus and what he did by coming back from the grave, and he lives. He's not a God who was, but he is, and he will be, is what the Bible says. And so we're going to celebrate him. And so I invite you to, and uh, I encourage you to invite your neighbors, friends, uh, family members that you would love to see come and be a part of that service that day. And we're going to hear about how the impossible is possible and how you can have a fresh start. So be praying about that. And again, if you want to write that on that card, who it is that you are praying about, we'll pray along with you. So uh, go ahead and do that. You can do that online. There's going to be that connect link for that digital card there as well. Well, we are coming kind of to a close. We're not closing up today, I don't think, unless it slipped my mind, but our, the end of our sermon series, and we have been talking about a faith that works. And if you've been with us during this series, we've talked about some really practical things that help us live out the Christian life. And so um, today's sermon is one as well that is going to be so practical, I think, um, because it's how are we living our lives? Are we having a God mindset? Are we having a worldly mindset? And so let me share this video with you, and then we'll talk a little bit more.
how are we living our lives? And between the dashes and the things that we are wanting uh, for our lives. When I went to college, I shared this uh, in the first service, but I had this list of things that I wanted to accomplish. They were very simple. I guess I'm a very simple person, but I, I wanted to get married. I, it's kind of crazy, but you know, I'm older, but I wanted a computer <laughs> and uh, I wanted kids and I, just all these things, but I wanted a good job and I wanted a nice car and a nice house and all the things we just saw in that video, just the things that we want in life, right? That, that uh, American dream. But sometimes we get lost in those things, and we get distracted, and we lose our way, right? And um, so there's something more that we can live for. Uh, and so hopefully that video has kind of whet your appetite this morning about what we're going to hear today, because there's so much to live for in life than a car or a house or the perfect family or any of those kind of things that you could think of this morning. So uh, I challenge us as we listen a little bit later um, to apply the principles of God's Word to our life, because we're going to have a much better life, and we're going to live a life with no regrets. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue our worship here this morning, as we sing that song that I talked about for Easter. And it's because of Jesus and and that he is alive that we have the hope that we have. So let's worship. See the tomb where he laid. See the stone rolled away. He is risen, he is risen, he's alive. See his hands, see his feet, touch his scars and believe. He is risen, he is risen, he's alive. Oh, he's alive. shackles breaking free hear the song of the redeemed he is moving he is moving he's alive so take this freedom take this love can you feel it rising up he is here he is here he's alive Left it in the grave 
why we can trust that no matter what we face, that the battle belongs to him, but the way we fight it is on our knees through prayer and through worshiping him. So let's continue doing that today. And I challenge you, surrender those things to him that are a battle to you today, because he's here. He wants to take those things. Give it to him today. Thank you, God. 
can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. The battle belongs to you, and every fear I lay at your feet, and I'll sing through the night, oh God, the battle belongs to you, oh God, the battle belongs to you. truly belongs to him. Would you go to prayer with me? Father, we thank you, God, that you um, have already gone before us. We've sang about that this morning, God, that you've already conquered all the things in our lives, Lord, that we have victory through you and the power of your name and through your Holy Spirit. Father, we just sang about, we sing through the night, but God, I'm reminded that you say that you sing over us, Father. And Lord, I'm reminded that you gather us uh, like a mother hen, the Bible says, gathers her chicks, God, that we're so special to you. We're so loved by you, God. And if we could just wrap our minds around that sometimes, Lord, when we lose our way, um, Father, when we fail, when we falter, but God, you're always there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Um, Father, thank you for that. Thank you that, um, Lord, that we can be encouraged today through your word, and God, that we can live a life of no regrets. Lord, that the things that we learn today and when we apply them to our lives, God, you change us, you shape us, you mold us into the people you want us to be. But Lord, I want to take a moment just to pray for those who don't know you, Lord, who are under uh, the sound of my voice right now, those who are viewing online, those who might view later on, weeks from now, God. I pray that your spirit would start stirring their spirit, God. Lord, that um, you would help them to see how much you love them, how much uh, you have given for them, Father, for me, for all of us. And God, this special and wonderful gift of being able to have an eternal life relationship with you. And so, Father, as we hear your word now, would you begin to change us and mold us and shape us into your people? And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. And as you settle in, I just want to say, as I did first hour to the worship team, to Pastor Scott, thank you for what, at least for me, is a powerful reminder in that song that in light of all that's going on in the world, in our nation, uh, for many of us in our lives, in our families, and maybe even personally for us, that nothing's impossible for the power of God, that rather than simply giving up, which is our temptation, at least it's my temptation at times, instead of giving up, we can look up. We can lift our hands in prayer and believe that absolutely no situation is impossible for God. And that's really what we're going to celebrate this Easter, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to change our lives, to change those circumstances. So I, I encourage you, hold on to that truth this week. Whatever you're grappling with, maybe right now you just need to hold on to that in this moment just what you're facing. But I'm going to lead you into what is the eighth message in this series. Next week, we're going to wrap it up, and I'll just kind of spoiler alert, I won't be finishing the book of James. Uh, Easter got here a little bit quicker than, than I, I worked through the passages of this, uh, of this letter to the first uh, group of Christians, Jewish Christians by James. But probably somewhere along the time this year, I'll, I'll finish out the series for you, finish out the book of James. But today, I want to get us started by sharing with you uh, honestly, something that when I first read it this week in my preparation, it kind of set me back on my heels. It made me uh, take a serious stock of my life, and here it is. Maybe it'll have the same impact on you. But I read today that when you and I reach the age of 35, and that's just kind of a fond memory for me at this point, but whenever we reach the age of 35, folks, we only have approximately 500 days left that we can really live how we want to live our life. Now, some of you are probably thinking like I did when you hear that, go, that, that seems kind of short, and it is, but let me just net out for you how they arrived at that number. I mean, the average person today in America, I just checked it this morning, early this morning, that the person in 2022 is expected to leave, the average American, 79 years, 0 .05. So 79 years is the average lifespan in America. But you know and I know, folks, that if we start at 35 and we say, okay, if that's the average lifespan, then maybe we have 40, 45 years or so uh, of life left. But you realize, and I realize that during that time, that's not all our time, right? I mean, we've got to do things like go to work, take care of the house. For many of us, it's raise the kids, do the chores, mow the lawn. You know, for me, it's visit the grandkids. It's all these things that we have to do, and in many ways, we want to do. And so all that time, those 35, 40, 45 years are not all ours. There's things we have to do. In fact, one study calculated that just based on four things in your life and mine, and we all have that, and those four things are this, that when it comes down to our eating, our work, our sleeping, and the housework, those four things chew up 80% of our life, the time that we have each and every day. But it still goes deeper than that, because on top of that, we have things that we would say consume our time, that chew up our time. Things like this, that the average American spends six months of their life sitting at traffic lights. Now, if you live down where I do, I told the first hour... Uh, that it isn't traffic lights for me, it's following Amish buggies, okay? That's where I kill a lot of time, trying to come up Rollinsville. Uh, the average American, it, it, they tell us, spends eight months opening junk mail, digital and physical. Eight months of your life is spent opening junk mail. Three years of your life is spent in meetings. Two years of your life you spend, I spend, calling people who are either not home or simply don't want to pick up the phone. And finally, five years of your life and mine, we spend waiting in lines. And so when you take all that together and you subtract that from those 40, 45 years we have left, that's how they arrive if we're 35 years of age. That's how they arrive to say, you know, I really only have about 50 hours of our life to live the way we really choose. 
So here's my question. Here's really when I want to spend our time today. So how, what are you doing with those 500 hours? See, uh, the reality is, I would assume, like you, uh, you would respond like me and say, you know what, what we're doing with those 500 hours is we're investing them in widely significant ways, really important things. But the research tells us something different, because here's what I, I discovered this week as well. The average American spends 1,300 hours a year um, on social media. 1,300 hours, if you do the math, that's 54 days of our life every year we spend on social media, the average American. The research tells me as well that 2,000 hours a year we spend on our cell phones. 2,000 hours, folks, that's 83 days. Now, here, here, I share those stats, and I honestly don't know how you respond to them. Some of you are probably going, hey, that's just the way it is. Others of you, maybe a bit like me, go, wow, that's a lot. That's troubling. But however you respond to them, here, here's the reason I share it, folks. I can promise you I know how you'll respond in the end. That is the end of your life. We'll respond with regret. I've done enough funerals that I can say it with confidence. We're going to respond with regret. And again, I say that because a sociological study was done that, that surveyed men and women who were 95 years of age and older. Okay, So this was an elite group. Almost, you know, almost 100 years of life, and they asked this group of people, an open-ended question, they said, if you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? What would you change? And what's interesting from this research is that three responses really topped the charts. I mean, the, the, the number four response wasn't even close to the top three. And let me tell you what the top three answers were to that question. If you had to do it over again, how would you live your life? The first answer was this. They said, I would reflect more. I would just take more stock of my life along the way. The second thing they said is I would risk more. I would live a little bit more, I don't know, dangerously, but I would just, you know what, go, I would just go for it. I wouldn't leave anything on the, on the field or everything on the field. I wouldn't leave anything on the table. And finally, they said, the last thing I would do is make sure that I did more things that would outlast me, things that would last after my death. In other words, what those, those men and women, 95 years and older, said it, collectively Almost to the person was they said, you know what, we would live with no regret. We would not waste our life. And I share all that because that's really the mindset that James is trying to drive home today. He's trying to communicate to us the importance of living our life with no regret. And so let's get into it. Let's pick up where, where we left off last week with James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. Here's what we read. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spending a year there, carrying on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So here's what James is doing. He starts off by targeting a mindset that he says is dangerous. And here's the mindset. It's the mindset that says, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And we've all said that, haven't we? I know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to go here. I'm going to work there. I'm going to save this amount of money. You know, I'm going to make this deal. I'm going to pass up on that. I know the steps I'm going to take. I know the money I'm going to make. I know how my life's going to play out. And here's the thing, to a, to a degree, all of us do that. And I would say to a degree, there's nothing wrong with that, because in fact, the Bible encourages us to plan our lives. 
to have plans, to not be happenstance, to not take chance on this, this one incredible gift that God has given us. But, but James, in this process, isn't so much challenging that or saying that's wrong as much as he is trying to expose a faulty, even dangerous mindset that can move into your planning and mine, that could lead us astray in our planning. And so he writes this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spending a year there, carrying on business, and make money. Now, I want you to notice that the phrase in that verse that exposes the mindset that James not only wants to challenge but correct is the phrase, we will. I want to encourage you to underline that. James is saying, we will, because the way he uses that phrase really reveals a huge assumption on our part. And that huge assumption, folks, is that we have a far greater degree of control and direction over our lives than we really do. He's challenging this, this completely false assumption that somehow you and I really do determine our future. That's why he, he writes this. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So, so let me be clear with us. The James in no way here is challenging you or me making plans. What James is challenging instead of our planning is our presumption, our assuming this false assumption that somehow, folks, that we can determine and control our future. James says that's a false assumption. In fact, he says it's a dangerous assumption because we can't. For the reality is, and we know it when we're actually being objective, we know that none of us know for certain whether we're going to be here tomorrow or night, right? I mean, we do not know that for certain. In fact, none of us know for certain that we'll be here at the end of today. Now, David Freeman, some of you recognize that name, he wrote a book or co-authored a book called The Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. And in the book, as the title suggests, is he literally provides a list of a hundred things that in his estimation, in his opinion, that all of us ought to do, experience, before we die. And he kind of breaks them up in terms of things to do in the U.S. and things to do around the world. And in the U.S., he has things like this. He talks about, and, and I like this one. He says, we should all go to Alaska and, and watch the Iditarod slog, sled dog race. And I'm all for that. I think that's cool. He, he mentions that we ought to all experience New Year's Eve at Times Square. He says we ought to go to Mardi, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Outside the U.S., he says that we ought to do things like Carnival in Brazil, uh, Bastille Day in France, that we ought to go to Oktoberfest in Germany, and I do like this one as well. He says we all ought to go and experience the running of the bulls in Spain. Now, that one sounds like fun, but the reality is, however you land on it, here's the interesting thing. His goal in writing that book wasn't just to write the book. His goal was to write it and then to live it, to do all 100 things. And after writing the book, he very quickly began to work his way through that list, and he got about halfway through. He about accomplished about half of it. But then, at 47 years of age, David died when he hit his head in a fall at home. Now, the reason I share that, folks, is because it illustrates that no matter how well we plan, no matter what we hope to accomplish, in reality, when it's all said and done, folks, we have very little control about how long you and I really live. I mean, we could do some smart things, we could be wise with our health, but ultimately, that final day of your life and mine is beyond our control. But James doesn't stop there. He says, beyond that, I want you to recognize that regardless of how long you live, however long or short, he needs to say, even if it's long, you need to understand that your life and this perspective and the scope of eternity is like a mist in the morning. In other words, it, it's here, and then it suddenly vanishes. It seems to last very little time. And help us appreciate, not just intellectually, but emotionally, what James is trying to get across. At this point, I want you to watch this video clip. Only 
I just don't know how I'm going to get to Paradise Falls. much. I like you. Wow.
is the way it is. Life goes by so fast. And in light of that brevity, James offers a corrective, another perspective, another mindset. And so he offers this counsel. He he writes, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag. And so what James is doing here is he's challenging us. His challenge is readers first and foremost, but ultimately uh, us is to understand that our very next breath, our very next second, our very next minute, our very next day and hour ultimately is a gift from God. Which means if we truly understand that, truly believe that, then what happens tomorrow in your life, I mean, ultimately is not a me thing. It's ultimately a God thing. And so we need to make plans and approach our future and think about our future and live for the future by submitting that future to God in humility. By submitting it to God with open hands. That's why James says this. Take a look there. He, he said, if it's the Lord's will. In other words, if we're a follower of Jesus, no matter the plans that we're thinking about, conceiving, dreaming about, as followers of Jesus, we need to say to God, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. And so, yes, like we saw in the clip, yes, we can, we can dream about starting the family. But then we need to say, God willing. We could dream about buying a home and building a home together, but then we need to say, God willing. We, we can think about you know, saving so much money and going on this particular trip. We can dream about retiring in 10 years, but ultimately at the end of all that, we need to say, God willing. For when we adopt that kind of posture and attitude and mindset toward our plans, about our plans, then ultimately, folks, we are holding everything with open hands to God. And as a result of that, we're going to live our life in light of eternity. And when we do that, we're going to live with no regret. But that phrase, if it's the Lord's will, isn't just a test for the plans that we've already made. Just as importantly, folks, it is a guide for the plans that we are currently making. We need to understand that when we're making plans, we need to start by saying to God, God, what do you want me to do? Because we recognize as a follower of Jesus, as Paul said, that our life is not our own. It was purchased at a price. And so we need to say, God, God, because of that, it's not what I want to do. It's what you want me to do. Lead me, guide me, direct me. That's why James ends this way. He says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. In other words, folks, if we live our life in a way that we don't presume upon the future, if we live our life in a way that we recognize the brevity of life, if you and I live our lives in a way that consistently puts our lives and our plans in the hands of God, then James is saying we'll live with no regrets. And the reason he could say that is because we know we will do the good that we know to do. Because doing anything else to us in that moment with that attitude would seem not only senseless, but short-sighted. But James goes beyond that. He says, not only will it seem senseless, it in fact will be sin. Now, we need to talk about that, don't we? Because the reality is when, when we read that, most of our minds didn't go there. That's not how we would net it out. That isn't how we'd make the equation. Yet the reality is, folks... When you and I think about sin, we typically think of what? We tend to think about things that we did that we shouldn't do, right? We think about doing when we define sin. Most of us find it as things that I know not to do that God said I shouldn't do, but I did them anyhow. 
And scholars call that sins of commission because they're things we're committed. They're things that we chose to do. They're sins of commission. But James here is pointing out another side of sin, just as important, just as deadly, and that isn't just the sin, things that we choose to do that we know not to do, but James says another side of sin is not doing the things that we know God said to do. And scholars call that sins of omission because we simply omit doing them. We refuse to do them. We know the good to do. We know the right thing to do. We know the moral thing to do, but we choose not to do it. And those are sins of omission. Now, what I need to say in this context before we move forward is, folks, understand that James is not doing anything novel here. James is, James is teaching here is simply following the teaching of Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. In Matthew ch chapter 25, Jesus tells a story about three men who were each given a, 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 a sum of money. It, depending on your translation, it might say a bag of gold. But these men were entrusted to take this and, and to multiply it, to increase it. And, and we're told the first two men did exactly that. They took the money, they invested it, they brought back, and they doubled it money, and they presented it to the master. But the third man, fearful of the master's response, fearful of failure, took the money and simply dug a hole and buried it. Now, here's the point that we need to get. The man did nothing wrong. He didn't steal the money. He didn't buy lottery tickets. He didn't go to Vegas on the money. He did absolutely nothing wrong with it, but he didn't do anything right with it either. And in the story, that's the man that Jesus has called out by the master. That's the man in the story that Jesus takes to task. Later on in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells another story about a man who's traveling to Jerusalem and on his way he's attacked and, and left at the side of the road for dead. And eventually, as he is laying there, two very religious men, a, a priest and a Levite, think pastor and board member, come walking by, see the man, and do absolutely nothing. Now again, as Jesus tells the story, what becomes very clear is these men were not the men who jumped him. They weren't the men who attacked him. They weren't the men who, who in any way beat him up. These men simply ignored, these two men simply ignored the need that they saw in this man's life and did nothing. And as Jesus told this story, as he interpreted this story, he again takes that, those two men to task for their failure to act, to do the good they know to do. Finally, in Matthew chapter five, uh, 25, after the first illustration, Jesus is talking about the end of time, and he's really describing who's going to be accepted by God and who's going to be rejected by God. And in telling of that story, Jesus said, those who saw people hungry and gave them food, those who saw people thirsty and gave them drink, those who saw people homeless and gave them housing, those who saw people naked and gave them clothes in prison and visited them, those sick and, and, and called upon them, Jesus said, those are the people who will be accepted. In the end, he said, those are the people who will be accepted. Conversely, Jesus said, those who saw the, the people hungry and didn't feed them, you know, thirsty and didn't give them drink, he said, those people will be rejected. Now, what's interesting to me, and I think hopefully interesting to you, is Jesus nowhere said what we would have thought. And that is, nowhere does Jesus condemn the people who caused the hunger. Nowhere does Jesus in this story condemn the people who, who caused the thirst or the nakedness or the homelessness. Now, that's, now, don't get me wrong. Hear me out. That isn't because Jesus said they're not accountable. They are accountable. They will be judged. That's the obvious answer. But what Jesus points out, he points to those who saw the need, the emotional need, the physical need, and yet, because they were too busy with their own concerns, too busy with their own agenda, too busy with their own whatever, they chose to do absolutely nothing. 
And Jesus said, along with those, really, and what we need to understand is along with those who obviously caused the harm, those who ignore the hurt and did nothing about it will also be rejected. Now, here's the reason I bring that up. As modern-day followers of Jesus, and I think historically as followers of Jesus, but certainly modern-day evangelical Christians, we spend a lot of time focusing on making sure we don't do the wrong things. I mean, the, the mantra when I was growing up is, you know, and when I was a kid in around church is, we, you know, everyone knew what we were against, but no one knew what we were for. And folks, listen, it, it's good as evangelical Christians that, that people are clear and we're clear about what exactly is wrong, we, that we oppose evil, that we do those things. That's good. But Jesus and James as well are telling us here that we need as well to make sure that we focus on doing the good, the right that we know to do. Because in the end, what Jesus says really and what you know and I know is the sheep and the goats parable is the thing in the end is Jesus saying that what is left undone in your life and mine, the good that we knew to do and didn't do in the end is going to weigh heavily into God's assessment of your life and mine. That not only the, the, the evil that we did, but also the good that we avoided doing is going to weigh into God's evaluation and verdict on our lives. And in light of that last parable, I would suggest to you that I believe personally that a strong case can be made that for many, many followers of Jesus, there's probably going to be more sins of omission that we need to account for than sins of commission. In other words, there's going to be more things that we didn't do, though we, need, we knew to do it, than we're going to be accounted for for the things that we knew not to do, but we did it anyhow. So listen, here's where I want to take all this. In light of all the presumptions we can make about our life and about our future, Let's not make the mistake of saying something like this, and we've all said it. Once I earn a certain amount of money, once I reach this place in my career, once, once, once I have the house of my dreams, then I'll do the good that I know to do. I mean, of all the mistakes we can make, folks, let's not make the mistake of telling ourselves, you know, once the kids get out of diapers, once the kids get out of elementary school, once the kids get out of high school, once the kids get out of college and I pay off the college debt, once we get past our daughter's wedding, once our son no longer needs us to babysit his kids, then we'll give, then we'll serve, then we'll put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. And the reason we dare not make that mistake, folks, is because James is telling us that none of us, none of us dare assume that we have that tomorrow, that we'll ever have that time. And so it's saying to you and it's saying to me, no matter how long you live, no matter how long I live, if we wait until this thing is done, till that thing is accomplished, till, till this debt is taken care of, whatever it is, we'll never do the good that we know to do. Because there's always going to be something to be done, something to be accomplished, something to get by, something to get past. That's why James says, do the good now, right now, while we have opportunity. Because then, no matter how long or short our life ends up to be, and none of us will ever know, we will know for certain, whatever the duration of our life, folk, that we lived that life that God gave us well. We lived it with no regrets. And the reason I say that is because you know and I know, folks, the trap that it's so easy to fall into our culture. In our own minds, in our own lives, it's so easy for us to say, well, if life is so short then I need to get all the pleasure, I need to have all the thrills, and have all the excitement that I could possibly get. 
But if we truly grasp what James is getting at here today, about living our lives now in light of eternity, then folks, if we became aware today that we only had a few days, few weeks, few months to live, I promise you, none of us would spend that time chasing thrills and excitement. None of us would be preoccupied with professions and possessions. Because from that perspective, we would realize chasing after those things is an exercise in the trivial. We would recognize just how inconsequential any of those things are. Instead, what we would do with our time is we pour ourselves into doing all the good that we could possibly do for the people that we know and we love. Right? Isn't that what we would do? We would pour ourselves into it. We would do things like helping others, encouraging others. We would throw ourselves into touching other people's lives and, and being used by God to ultimately change eternities. We pour ourselves into bringing honor and glory to God with our life because we say all these other things are just absolute nonsense. They ultimately, like those 95-year-olds said, it, it, it won't matter in the end. Folks, when you and I study the life of Jesus, I think the, the impression that we can't escape is that Jesus was compelled, he was driven by the good that needed to be done right in front of him. Jesus definitely was no sort of procrastinator, which is why one day on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover near the end of his life, as he came close to the city of Jericho, he saw a blind man, a beggar sitting alongside the road. And even though you know, there was a deadline to accomplish that Jesus needed to get somewhere, he stopped and he healed this man. He restored his sight. He gave him the opportunity to literally provide for himself. The interesting thing was those in the crowd that his kind of entourage, those tagging along with Jesus and his disciples kind of were put out and frustrated by the fact that Jesus stopped. And the reason they were frustrated is because this man didn't fit their idea of who or what was really important. But for Jesus, this, this man was incredibly important. And so he stopped and he healed him. Well, Jesus all but resumed his journey toward Jerusalem again when he entered the city of Jericho and he encounters a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And if you know anything about tax collectors in that day, then you know Zacchaeus was somebody that nobody cared for. He was despised, despised by those in the crowd. He was despised by the people in Jericho. And that was because tax collectors, they're not real popular today, but back then they were in, if you will, partnership with the Roman Empire. Here was the deal with the tax collector. Rome says we need to have, let's say, $10 a tax assessed per person. But if you as a tax collector get them to pay 15, give us our 10, you can keep the five. So tax collectors were notorious about extorting their fellow Jews for their own personal enrichment, for their own personal profit. And so people hated them. And so when Jesus not only stopped to talk to Zacchaeus, but accepted his invitation to dinner, those in the crowd once again saw it as a tremendous waste of time. But Jesus, from his perspective, his priorities saw it as a good thing that needed to be done in that moment. And so he went to dinner, and he spent time with Zacchaeus. And as a result, Zacchaeus not only became a follower of Jesus, but he promised to repay everyone he had taken money from with interest, in fact, 400% interest, and as well to help the poor in, in the community. And, and after the whole day was kind of closing down, it was now night, the day was over, Jesus explained to Zacchaeus and his disciples exactly what his priority were, was that led him to act the way he acted. What was gu his guiding principle in all of this? 
And I want you to take a look at it. It's there in the outline. Jesus said this, I, the Messiah, have come to search for and to save such souls as his. To save such souls as yours and mine. That's why Jesus said, I did what I did. I did the good that I saw now. So let's get clear, folks, absolutely clear before we close this message out on the two life lessons James has for us. The first one is this, life is short. That's the reality. James says life is short, and the fact is, even if God, by his grace, gives us 100, 120 years, folks, by the perspective of eternity, it's still not much. The second life lesson is this, that we need to do the good that we know to do now. And the reason that's so important, folks, is if we live by that principle, if we do the good that we know to do now, then when the end of your life comes, the end of my life comes, we can be confident, absolutely confident, that we have left the ones that we love a good and godly legacy. And I can promise you, after almost 30 years of ministry, I can promise you in that moment two things. The first thing I promise you is as your family gathers for that memorial service for the, fam- for the funeral, I can promise you, first of all, your family will grieve your death. But here's the second thing I can promise you. They will not grieve your life. They will not grieve your life. In fact, they will celebrate it. Because they recognize it and they know that you lived your life with no regret for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray for all of us here in this room and watching online that we will take James's words that we've heard today and read today to heart. That we will live a life with no regret. And we will do that by living a life that leaves a legacy of good. Father, I pray that for me. I pray that for everyone in this room and everyone watching online. I pray that whatever challenge you had for us to hear individually and corporately through James's words, that that, that, that challenge got across. And then that challenge will lead us to live right here, right now, a life that's lived in light of eternity. Because the lessons that James gave us today are clear, Father, that this life truly is short. It's brief. It's but a vapor. And the second, that, Father, we need to do the good that we know to do that we can do now. Not wait, not procrastinate, but to do it now. So, Father, help each and every one of us as we sit here in this moment, as we leave this place, as we think about this message this week. Help us to truly realize how short life really is. And then to help us focus on living it well by preparing ourselves and those we love for the life to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, for sharing that message with us today. And, uh, you know, our challenge is, is what are we living for? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for the Lord? Um, and uh, I was challenged by a prayer that I read this morning, and it just kind of helped to bring everything into focus. And, um, and this is what it said. It said, help us to focus our attention on you. And it's talking about Jesus. 
help us uh, or and not allow distractions to overtake and discourage us from what you offer and Jesus is offering us that eternal life that life of no regret, the things that we can be proud of at the end of our life, the things that we'll be remembered for. And so um, that's the challenge today. And if you are facing something, uh, even as I said earlier, something that seems impossible, would you please write that on the green card today? We would love to pray along with you. You can do that confidentially. There's a box there to check this morning, um, or you can share it with a committed group uh, that would pray along with you as well. You can do that online there. There's going to be a Uh, You can just do that in the chat link, and we can get that to the appropriate uh, people, but there'll be a private way you can do that. So, But um, that's one of our great privileges here uh, as a staff, that we get to to come alongside you and pray with you about these concerns and the things that are going on in your life. And uh, so I know that uh, I've been challenged, and um, uh, so, yeah, but when we're challenged, we grow, right? Whenever we face something that's hard and we go through it. And remember, we sang that song earlier. The way we do it is we we pray about it. We get on our knees, we pray, we ask for God's strength to help us as we walk through those things. Uh, I also want to encourage you, maybe, um, you know, there's something that God's been working on and you want others to know that. Great way to do that, to help you bring friends and family and neighbors and to be able to share those stories of life change invite them to Easter. We're going to have a great service, great time of celebrating what Jesus has done and uh, celebrating the resurrection together. So use those cards in your bulletin, invite those people that God has been laying on your heart. And if you would, if you want to put them on your card, do that as well this morning, write their names on the back of that card. And we'll be praying along with you guys as well, that you'd have that opportunity or the courage, whatever you need to be able to ask them to come. And then one more thing, out in the, in the lobby, I think I didn't check, but there should still be some yard signs. If you would like one of those for your house or for your business, please feel free to take one, two, however many you need. But take those and, and put that in your yard and let people know. It's another great way of being able to share with others uh, and be able to invite. I just simply ask you to bring them back to me after Easter. But uh, again, a great way to be able to do that. Um, and then just lastly, it's, it's always our joy and privilege to be able to offer resources to people like the Bibles you have in front of you or the things that we have, programs, whatever it is, to be able to help our children or people who have needs. But when you give, that's a great way of being able to help with that. And it's our way of worshiping Jesus as well. So there are ways to do that that you've seen on the screen this morning online. There's going to be a link And at the back of the room, there's an envelope if you need one of those. But no pressure, but it's just another way that we can worship Jesus, showing him that we honor him with our heart. And so uh, if you want to do that, it's available for you today. Thank you for your attention. It's been great to worship with you, and it's always a great time together. So thank you for being here today, and I look forward to worshiping again with you next week. Hope you have a great rest of your week.